from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Joyce Watanabe. Joyce was born in a World War II Japanese internment camp. When she was two, her family moved to Seabrook, New Jersey. When she was 12, her family returned to Gardena, California, where they had lived before the war. Joyce's life experiences dramatically expanded after she became a Baha'i. I started the interview by asking Joyce where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Seabrook, New Jersey, and in Gardena, California, where I am now. And Seabrook was terrific. It's in rural truck farm, southern New Jersey. It was Seabrook Farms Frozen Foods which at the time was the largest food-freezing plant almost in the world. And it was a village of about 5,000, but there were lots of nationalities. There were Japanese and Jamaicans and displaced Europeans from World War II. How old were you when you left Seabrook, New Jersey? The month of my 12th birthday. Uh-huh. And then we came to Southern California and came to Gardena. And why was it that you left New Jersey? My family actually lived in East L.A. before Pearl Harbor. And then as a result of Pearl Harbor, my family went to one of the Japanese wartime internment camps in Arizona and then at the end of World War II, towards the end, some recruiters came from Seabrook Farms saying that because they knew that the Japanese were not popular and were not wanted, but they came and offered work. So that's why my family went to Seabrook, New Jersey. You were born in Seabrook, New Jersey? I was actually born in the war camp on an Indian reservation in the Arizona desert because the United States government took over a couple of Indian reservations in Arizona in order to put the Japanese. And how old were you when you left the internment camp? Two years old, so I don't remember anything about camp. So how did your parents feel about that? I wish I knew... I understand that it's typical that these parents did not talk about their experience because of shame and embarrassment, and my parents did not talk about it either, so I don't know, and they have both passed away many years ago. So when I go to museum exhibits about the camp experience and the Japanese wartime experience, I once wrote in the guest book that I have to go to these exhibits to learn about my own childhood. They went back to California because that's where home was before the war? Yes. 
after, well, they went from California to Arizona to New Jersey for 10 years and then back to California. And that's where you went to uh, junior high and high school? Yes, here in Gardena. I'm talking to you from the same house that our family bought 50 years ago, which for back east is not unusual, but here in Southern California it's unusual to be in the same house for 50 years. What was religious life like for you growing up? My parents were nominally Buddhist. They did not go to church. They went for funerals of their friends and things like that. But we children, I have three brothers, no sisters, we went to Christian Sunday school in Seabrook, New Jersey, because my father told me that when we were small, my mother, our mother got sick, and it was the Christian minister who came to visit her when she was sick. And when he left the visit, he said to my father, bring your children to Sunday school. So he did. So it makes me understand the importance of inviting people to come to things, even if you're sure they won't. What happened after high school? After high school, I went right to work as a teenager. I, my first job was at Los Angeles City Hall in the city planning department at what was then called a clerk stenographer because mm-hmm. I was good at typing in shorthand. And how long did you do that for? For six years, I was with the city of Los Angeles. And in that time, I became a Baha'i and I left a very good job at City Hall to go to work at the National Baha'i Center in Wilmette, Illinois, and my parents did not understand that. Well, let's start with, how is it that you even ran into the Baha'i faith? A friend of mine at the time, and this was the 1963, the year of the first international election for the Universal House of Justice. Can you explain what the Universal House of Justice is for folks? That's the international governing body of the Baha'i faith with the headquarters in Haifa, Israel. So a friend of mine had heard about the Baha'i faith in 1963 and said, do you want to go to a Baha'i fireside in Beverly Hills, California? And I said yes, because I wanted to see a mansion in Beverly Hills. And it turned (laughs) out to, to be the apartment of a black woman in Beverly Hills, which I think is interesting that a black woman would be living in Beverly Hills, and this was before the Civil Rights Act was passed. The speaker was Mark Towers, who had been an actor, and I thought everything he said made sense, which I liked, that there was no competition among the religions that Ours is not better than yours, and I like the affection among the Baha'is. So I like the combination of common sense and affection, Mm -hmm. and I still like that combination. Your initial reaction to hearing about the Baha'i faith was positive. Was positive, and it's interesting because I have not ever been a seeker. I was not one to ask questions like, Why am I here? Why was I born? What are we doing? What happens in the next life? Why don't people get along? Why are there different religions? I didn't have questions like that. I did believe in God as a child, so I was happy 
in Sunday school and then happy to learn about the Baha'i faith, even though it was, as I said, I was not questioning, I was not desperate. It was one of those gifts. There's a, a quotation of Baha'u'llah in a book called The Dawnbreakers, where it says that, oh, and I'm reading it, be thankful to God for having enabled you to recognize his cause. Whoever has received this blessing must, prior to his acceptance, have performed some deed which, though he himself was unaware of its character, was ordained by God as a means whereby he has been guided to find and embrace the truth. And so I always thought it meant that all of us who found the faith had done some good deed. And then one day it came to me, oh, maybe I did a bad deed, and so I needed the faith more to make me better. <laughs> so it, there's two ways of looking at it. I see, yeah. Aren't there? Yeah. I was always, you know, patting myself on the back. <laughs> I did a good deed. <laughs> right. So now I'm trying to do good deeds. Yeah, right. That's good. Um, how long was it after you first heard about the Baha'i faith that you actually became a Baha'i? A year and a half. So even though I liked it right away, I, I was in no hurry. Then eventually I did. In April 1965, became a Baha'i. Was the first one in Gardena, to our knowledge. So after you became a Baha'i, did things change in your life? Yes, because the next year I went to work at the National Baha'i Center in Illinois, and I was the secretary to the secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly, who at that time was Dr. David Rue. I was his secretary then when he was elected himself to the Universal House of Justice. And how was it that you even got that job at the National Baha'i Center? I was reading a novel called The Stone Face, and there was a torture scene in it. It was a novel about the Algerians in France, and there was a torture scene of the Algerians, and I just cried and cried, and I actually got down on my knees in my bedroom in this house in Gardena, and I said, oh, please, God, let me help do something to make the world better. You know, when you're young, you have these stronger feelings, and the next day in the mail, and I usually don't have this kind of story, but the next day in the mail, my American Baha'i arrived. Maybe it was at the time called Baha'i News. Joyce, can you explain what the American Baha'i or the Baha'i News is? That's the monthly, at the time, monthly newspaper that's mailed to every registered Baha'i. What did you find in the American Baha'i? My American Baha'i arrived, and there was a want ad for a secretary at the National Baha'i Center. So I applied, and I got a long-distance phone call from Dr. Rue himself. We talked a little over the phone. I guess I had mailed in an application and a resume. So then he called me in response himself. He didn't have anybody else call, and I accepted, and I told my parents, and they were dumbfounded because at the time I was young. I was 23, and I was secretary to the president of the Board of Public Works at L.A. City Hall, and it was a department of 6,000 employees 
just that one department of public works. So my parents were very proud because I was actually earning more than my father at the time. He was a gardener because here in Southern California, lots of Japanese gardeners. And I had not talked to my parents at all, either about becoming a Baha'i the year before or about applying for this job and accepting it. I just presented them with the news. What was their reaction to you even becoming a Baha'i? Because I didn't tell them, they didn't have much reaction until the fast came around. And there I am in March fasting, and they thought it was strange, but I think they thought I'm a strange, headstrong girl. Mm. What is the Baha'i Fast? It's a time in March, 19 days in March, which is one Baha'i month, because Baha'is have our own calendar, and we fast, as all previous religions have done, from sunrise to sunset. Mm-hmm. No water, no food, no nothing. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so they thought that was strange, but they didn't say anything and they didn't say eat. It was okay. So did that ever change later in life for them and you? Mm, I think it did not. And. One very regretful thing that happened because I went to work at the National Center for two years is that my father died of cancer while I was away. So I came home for the funeral. So I always think now he knows Mm. about the faith in the next life. Our family was not close, and I'm the only Baha'i in the family. Yeah, what does your brothers think of you becoming a Baha'i? They don't talk about it. They don't ask me. They don't talk. We, because as I was saying, the family is not close, and so we didn't talk much. I didn't tell them that I became a Baha'i. So that part is a shame because it's supposed to be family unity and unity of all mankind and the world. But in our family, we just didn't talk very much. And there was also a language situation because my parents were born and raised in Japan, Mm -hmm. and they met and married in California, and that's where my brothers and I were born, in in California or Arizona. My mother didn't speak really English, and we children didn't speak that much Japanese, or actually hardly any. That's why, for me, one of my favorite principles in the Baha'i faith is that in the future we will have one language. Because I've traveled a lot, I feel keenly the desirability of having one language. And then living here in Southern California, Disneyland is half an hour away, and Hollywood is 14 miles straight north, and there are guidebooks published for all these tourist attractions. And even when they're published in 30 languages, it's still not enough. Because there's always going to be somebody from somewhere. It's not going to be published in the Czech language, probably. It's not going to be published in Mongolian. It'll be in Chinese, but not in Mongolian. And when I think of all the money and effort that's required for all these translations, for translators at the United Nations, 
So I think of the future and how good it'll be when we have one language. So you were telling your story about how you were the secretary of the secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly, Dr. David Roof. I was at the National Center for two years, and it was 1968 that Dr. Roo was elected in a by-election. I see. So then, because he left, and I still had some months to go in my two-year term of working at the National Center, I say that I inherited Glenford Mitchell, who became the new secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly of the United States. So I got to work with Mr. Mitchell, too. And then he eventually got elected to the Universal House of Justice. And I got to reunite with both of them and other friends when I went to serve at the World Center. So what happened when you left the National Baha'i Center? So then I came home to Gardena and was here for some more years until I decided to change careers from secretary to becoming a retail florist. So I moved from Gardena to San Francisco to go to San Francisco City College and get a certificate as a florist. What inspired you to do that? I was thinking about changing careers, and I thought, I like flowers, and in our house, as I said, my father was a gardener, and my mother worked at a wholesale nursery, so I knew about plants and flowers, and who doesn't like flowers, so I thought, well, I'll become a florist, I'll go learn how to be a florist, and Mm -hmm. San Francisco City College had a one-year program where you could get a a certificate after one year. So that's what I did. And then I stayed in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you were a florist? For, it turns out, only a couple years, and I went back to being a secretary. (laughs) And why is that? When you're a florist, you stand on your feet all day, Mm -hmm. and your hands get cold and beat up. You're working with rough stems, and when it's roses, there are thorns and the flowers are in a refrigerated case, so they're cold. So I thought, well, maybe I'll be more comfortable and sit down again and type. (laughs) So I did that, but I always had interesting jobs. When I was in San Francisco, I was secretary to the port director for the port of San Francisco in the ferry building, and I was secretary to the president of a very popular department store chain, and I worked at the Golden Gate Bridge as secretary to the chief engineer. And while I was at the Golden Gate Bridge, I was recruited to serve at the World Center in Israel. Because once you work at the National Center and they know you and you do a good job, then they seek you to continue your service and go work at the World Center. And I declined. I did not want to go to Israel. Why is that? Did not appeal to me to go to Israel, even though by then I had traveled some. I'd been to Europe and Canada and Mexico, England, France, Italy. But I thought, I think I don't want to go to Israel. But, and, and the way I kind of put them off, I said, well, I would first like to be vested in the retirement system at the 
Golden Gate Bridge, and that will happen in 1985 or something. Mm -hmm. So come 1985, they contacted me again and said, will you come? And at that point, I did say yes. Now, what was your resistance to going to Israel? See, the country and the people, the landscape did not appeal. The Christian holy places did not draw me. I think the heat did not draw me. The desert didn't attract me. But then, once there, it was 600 of us from, 600 Baha'is from 50 different countries serving under the shadow of the Universal House of Justice. So that was, to live in a Baha'i community like that and have the material needs taken care of, and then to associate every day and have conversations of substance every day, as well as multiple hugs every day, (laughs) that worked out very well. So what changed your mind to to finally accept? The work was not going so well, and personal relationship was not going so well, and the rent was going up every frequently, so I thought, okay, I'll go. And I'm able, I've always had the luxury to do that kind of thing, to just do independently whatever I wanted. You know, I didn't have obligations, I didn't have a husband to take care of or children to take care of, and at that time, my mother had already passed away while I was working at the Golden Gate Bridge, and then my brothers were not needing me. So it was, I was free to go, and I went. And what did you do at the World Center? I accepted a brand new position that the Universal House of Justice had created called Quality Control, which meant proofreader. So I proofread the sacred writings of the Baha'i Faith whenever they were used, for instance, in a compilation on a Baha'i topic. So the first compilation that I proofread was on trustworthiness which is one of my favorite virtues. And then the last one I proofread uh, five years later, almost five years later, was the Red Book called Baha'u'llah that had been written especially for the second holy year, which was 1992 to 1993. And in between, I proofread Preserving Baha'i Marriage and A Chaste and Holy Life, And apart from those published compilations, I got to proofread many compilations that the research department at the World Center compiled on topics that individuals, Baha'is, would write in and ask about. And that was my work. And it suited me because I I can spell and I I can proofread just... It comes naturally to me. So I suited the work, and the work suited me. Now, you mentioned trustworthiness is your favorite quality. Why is that? Baha'u'llah says that trustworthiness is the foundation of stability and order in the world. And the way I think of it, if I tell you that, yes, I'll be here for this interview at 5 o'clock my time, and you trust me to be here because I said I would, 
then it makes your life, you don't have to worry. Is she going to be there, as she said she is? Will she be late? Will she be on time? And if I say, right now I'm proofreading a friend's Ph.D. dissertation, and my deadline is this weekend, and I intend to fulfill it to be trustworthy, but what if I didn't? What if he had to think, is she going to finish when she says she is? So I think that our name is given to us. They say all we have is our name, but really all we have is our reputation. And I can create my own reputation without blaming anybody else. So if I can be trustworthy and, as I say, give somebody else's life stability and confidence and that they can trust me to keep my word, then I'm happy. So how long were you at the World Center? Almost five years, from 1986 to 1991. Mm -hmm. So I was there for the first Gulf War. So what was that like? It was not so scary because it ended so quickly. And for a war, after the first day and a half, we had bus service, we had postal service, we went back to work at the seat of the Universal House of Justice. The Universal House of Justice had reassured all the staff that we were free to leave if we were afraid or if our families were afraid for us and wanted us to come home. So some people did. But for me to come home would have been from Israel to California, maybe 6,000 miles, and I wasn't afraid because the Universal House of Justice said, we're staying here and it will be work as usual, and you can choose whether you stay with us or leave temporarily or permanently. So it was no problem for me. I did see a scud my first night, and I heard a couple of the Patriot missiles that were sent to intercept the scuds, and it turned out that... Eventually, the the U.S. military admitted that not one Patriot missile had intercepted one Scud. Mm -hmm. But also, they were aiming the Scuds to southern Israel, to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And the couple that came to Haifa, the few that came to Haifa, were misdirected. Mm -hmm. They came accidentally to Haifa, which is in the north of Israel, closer to the border with Lebanon. So did they actually land in Haifa and do damage? Yes, there was some damage, and I'm told that after I left, they built a mall, and they nicknamed it the Scud Mall, <laughs> and there was actually a Scud that had landed is now part of the mall, but that all happened. That was, as I said, constructed the year I left. I was live. My apartment was in a building of four apartments, and I remembered during the war, thinking, it's very quiet in this building. Did, did my Jewish-Israeli neighbors all flee the building and nobody told me? And I thought, you know, there was a notice on the front door, but it was in Hebrew and I cannot read it. And the Universal House of Justice didn't tell me otherwise. So I just stayed there. And it turned out, indeed, my Jewish neighbors had left the building temporarily and then they came back. But... I was completely safe. We were, we all, all the staff, 
were supplied gas masks, which we put on every time the sirens went off, which happened a number of times. And we were given a week's worth of food supplies and some plastic film to make what was called a safe room because they were afraid of chemical warfare. So we were told to seal up with tape and this plastic film the doorways and the windows and things and to have just one one area of your apartment or your house that was going to be safe and that's where your food and water were. But nothing happened. We were safe. The Baha'i properties were all spared any damage, if my memory serves correctly. Again, I was safe Mm. and was not very frightened. Did you have a fixed term at the World Center, or how did that work? I did not. I did not. They do have fixed terms of service there, but they said I could come for whatever time period I wanted. And I said, oh, three months? And they said, (laughs) well, no, not three months. I said, six months? Well, no. (laughs) So I think we set it at a year or two, maybe. And then a year or two went by, and I was still there, and it was still working out fine. And so I just stayed until I felt that it was time to leave Israel and come back to America, and that was almost five years. So did your attitude toward being in Israel change immediately when you got there? No, it didn't. You still wouldn't choose to live there if it was your no. brothers? No, I like America. <laughs> I, like, I like the conveniences mm-hmm. of American life. Were those the reasons why you left after five years? No, it was just, it felt like I just got a feeling, mm-hmm. and not particularly strong, but I thought, okay, I've been here almost five years, I think I'd like to leave now. So I did. <laughs> and the Universal House of Justice left me, let, let me. And they said, you can apply to come back and serve. So what did you do when you got back to California? See, Oh, before I left the World Center, I had decided that I wanted to work either at the Mill Valley Library or at the College of Marin, And, in fact, that's what happened. The day after I returned to Mill Valley, I went to the library and got my library card, and then I volunteered with the Friends of the Library and volunteered every morning for a month. And they they asked me would I like to work at the library, so I said yes. And I worked temporarily as a page, shelving books, and then a little bit at the circulation desk. And then I got a job after actually seven months it took me to get a permanent job. I got a job at at College of Marin. Uh, You're you're living at your parents' house now? Is that true? Yes, I'm back in the house that the family bought 50 years ago. I was gone for 26 years, starting with the retail floristry. And then I just stayed, as I said, I stayed up in Marin County after San Francisco, and I was in Mill Valley before and after my time at the World Center in Israel. But your parents had passed away by the time you were in Israel, right? Yes. So the house stayed in the family, but nobody lived in it, or what? My younger brother lived in it 
until he bought his own house around the corner here in Gardena. So he's still local, and he lived here, and then he, he bought his own house. So the house was, you're right, not occupied for two years until I came back. This was after I retired from College of Marin, and I was able to retire early because there was a house to come back to. And uh, what year was that? Uh, well, I came back to Gardena 10 years ago. And what have you been doing since then? I'm back with the Friends of the Library here in Gardena, and last week was time to write the newsletter for the Friends of the Library, so I produced that. And I walk the dog, Kia, every afternoon. Mm -hmm. In fact, the time you called was normally about the time I'd be coming home from our daily walk. And because of walking every day with a small dog, you get to meet the neighbors. So we, Kia, the dog, and I are now part of a neighborhood dog pack of six women and six dogs. As I say, you, you get to meet the neighbors. So people who say, I don't know my neighbors except maybe to wave at them, well, my recommendation is you get a small, friendly dog and you walk every day. <laughs> and you meet particularly the children because mm. they're interested in the dogs. And in fact, this coming Saturday, there's a barbecue for the dog pack members and the dogs. So it's good exercise. Things You get to see what's happening in the neighborhood. You see what's growing, what house is for sale, who's having a, a barbecue in their yard. And it's a Latino neighborhood where I am in Gardena. So there's lots of parties in their yards. Mm -hmm. I suppose the neighborhood's changed a bit since you were growing up there. Yes, it's changed a lot. And for me, the change I see is commercial, more retail stores and things. Like mm -hmm. there's a Sam's Club now in the neighborhood that I could walk to, mm -hmm. but I'm not a member of it. And then it turns out that Gardena is known for its many restaurants. People come, in fact, I was at a dinner party Saturday night, a dozen of us, and there's a man who lives near L.A. Airport, and he comes to Gardena to eat. I said, you come from Westchester, eight miles, to come to Gardena and eat? And he said, yes. So I think he knows more Gardena restaurants than I do. <laughs> do you also see that the neighborhood has become more diverse over the years? Yes. In fact, my block has a dozen nationalities. I said it's mostly Latino, but within the Latino group, for instance, next door is Ecuadorian. The other side next door is Mexican. Next to the Mexican is a Japanese woman. Next to her is a Portuguese woman from the Azores. Mm. Across the street from me is a black couple. Next to them is a white family. Next to them is a Samoan family. Wow. And then there are Koreans on the block. And there's somebody from South America at the corner. So it's very fun. I mean, I've always lived in lots of diversity, starting in Seabrook, New Jersey, and then Gardena, and then the San Francisco Bay Area. So mm -hmm. It feels to me that it was natural that I would become a Baha'i with mm. the Earth is One Country theme. Plus, 
my mother, when she emigrated to America, she sailed on a ship from Japan, and the ship, the Japanese ship, was called the Persia Maru, M-A-R-U, Maru. Every Japanese ship has that same word, Maru, as part of their name. So, explain to our listeners what the significance of it being named Persia, Persia. Madu. Yes, because the Baha'i faith originated in Persia in the middle 1800s. So for my mother to sail on a ship, and at that time, of course, I wasn't born. She hadn't married my father yet, but it was a while before I heard of Persia and Iran. You know, I said that I grew up with lots of nationalities in Seabrook, but Persian was not yet one of them. Um, so that was Kismet. Say that again. I said, so my mother's ship, that was Kismet. Kismet is originally an, I think, Arabic word, which means fate or destiny or something. So Kismet is a word in English taken from the Arabic word, which means, I think, fate or destiny. So maybe it was fate and destiny that I would become a Baha'i. See, I like words, and today is the day of the Feast of Words. At least here in California, it's still daylight, so yeah. it's still the feast day of the Feast of Words. Feast is community gathering of every Baha'i in a locality to commemorate or to mark the beginning of a new Baha'i month, because I had mentioned that each religion brings its own calendar, so the Baha'i faith has its own calendar of 19 months of 19 days each. And today is the first day of the month of words, which I like and which I'm proofreading right now. So it's only natural that you being a lover of words, you would introduce a new word for me so that I could increase my vocabulary. Yes, and I'm so surprised, Warren, that you don't know this word, so I hope you go right to the dictionary when we're done and that you look up K-I-S-M-E-T. Okay. Now, it's really funny because I play boggle with my mother-in-law, and she beats me all the time because her vocabulary is so much better than mine. Yes, and I'm told that your wife is a whiz and who got an 800 on her English <laughs> well, how did you find that out? <laughs> because you forget that I met your son, Damien, right. here. That's right, in L.A., right. Yep. Yes, because we both volunteered at a Baha'i regional conference in L.A. He, so he bragged about his mother. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, it came up because maybe because he, Damien and I disagreed about a word, and he was proving his provenance, you know, that he had a mother, and that he could never get her on a word, that she would always be right. And he has that ability, too. And the, the funny thing is that, you know, and I told you that you didn't know that in May I had been in your house in Hadley for five minutes one night, unexpectedly, but my brother lives in South Hadley, and I had planned a trip to South Hadley last year, even before I met Damien. So then I meet Damien, and he says he's from Western Massachusetts. Oh, where are you from? Hadley. And I said, Oh, well, I'm going to South Hadley. <laughs> so I meet Damien in LA, and then he. 
goes back home to Hadley, Massachusetts, and I get to see him in Hadley, Massachusetts as well. I met his mother and his mother's mother, the one who beat you at Boggle. Right, that's right. <laughs> so, so ask them about Kismet, and they'll say, well, of course, Warren, how can you not know that word? Absolutely, absolutely. Right? I, I, so I don't think I'll put myself in that situation. <laughs> I'll just let the rest of the whole world know that I don't know Kismet through this interview. Very good. That means you're a good sport. And besides, you, I, I really like the line in the prayer that says that God has endowed each and all with talents and faculties. I really like that line, thou hast endowed each and all with talents and faculties. So yours is technology. You're at the soundboard. You're doing this Baha'i Perspective radio show. And the fact of how we're doing this cross-country, transcontinental <laughs> telephone interview for the radio made me think of that, that quotation of The Guardian about... A mechanism, a mechanism of world intercommunication will be devised, embracing the whole planet, freed from national hindrances and restrictions, and functioning with marvelous swiftness and perfect regularity. So that's the Internet, that's Skype, that's all these computer telephone calls. You and, know that and, line, right? Yes, I do. And Joyce, when was that written? In 1936, on March 11th, which is my birthday, March 11th, during the fast, so, but before I was born, 1936. Right. So, yeah, how many years later are we? And he had written about that, not knowing that we would have Skype right. and Google and Bing and the World Wide Web. That's 73 years ago. There were people in the, in the 60s who said... The idea of having a computer in anybody's home is ridiculous. <laughs> Can you explain who the Guardian is in the Baha'i Faith? The Guardian is a title for a Baha'i named Shobhi Effendi, who is a descendant of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, Shobhi Effendi, a descendant who was in his lifetime, the center of the Baha'i faith. And then he passed away in 1957. And then uh, shortly thereafter, our international governing council called the Universal House of Justice was elected. And we're all part of that. Joyce, I have one more question for you. Yes. Is there something you want to do that you haven't done yet? Not so much physical things like traveling or trying a new kind of work, but I would like to develop the characteristic of taking action more quickly. I have lots of ideas, but I need to take initiative and take action and get things done. What ideas do you have in your head that you would like to take action on? I need to declutter the house and things not accumulate so many things, not hang on to so many things. Because as a Baha'i, I'm not afraid of dying because I think of moving on to the next world and a higher world and a non-physical world. And I believe in eternity, so I'm working on my 
bio for my funeral service, and it's mm. I've got the first line and the last line. The first <laughs> line is "Once upon a time," and the last line is "And she lived happily ever after." <laughs> well, that's a start. So now I have to fill in <laughs> the in between. Well, I hope you uh, are able to fill in the lines in between and accomplish your other goals that you have in your head that you want to uh, take action on. Thank you. So please say an action prayer for me, okay. a Joyce Do It prayer. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll do that. I said three prayers this afternoon, and one of them was, Oh, God, guide me, protect me. And another one was the one that says, In moments of heedlessness, guide my steps aright, meaning don't let me put my foot in my mouth and help me say the right things. And then the remover of difficulties. And then I also tried to sit quietly. So why don't you recite for us the prayer that starts with, Oh God, guide me. Oh God, guide me, protect me. Make of me a shining lamp and a brilliant star. Thou art the mighty and the powerful. Did I say it right? I think you did. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joyce Watanabe a Baha'i of Japanese descent, whose life experience dramatically expanded after she became a Baha'i. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.